Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of PAS FML, the only podcast run by an actual, real-life, current PA student. That's me. I'm your host, PAK, and on today's episode, we are going to talk all about type 2 diabetes, uh, a.k.a. sugar beeties, which is probably insensitive to me, but uh, whoops. Um, so I, the episode before this was actually all about type 1 diabetes, and that is because I am just finishing up my endocrinology rotation. Not that everybody in my program happens to do one, that's just where I am. Uh, and I am absolutely loving it because um, I'm doing pr primary, primarily type 1 and type 2 diabetes. So that's why these two episodes are a little bit longer because not only do I have pants material to cover, but I actually have like expert in input um, to share with everybody. So uh, anyway, they got too long to put into one episode. And so that's why I'm splitting them up. So uh, if you're interested in type one diabetes, which I hope at least even if you listen to like the first 10 minutes or so, uh, it should be beneficial because uh, I have a, a handful of pearls about some objective tests, uh, meaning like lab work that you should do at, even at like the primary care level um, that uh, explains how you formally diagnose somebody as type 1, meaning like what does the lab work show for somebody who's type 1 and somebody who's type 1.5, which in our program was called um, latent autoimmune adult uh, diabetes onset, something like that, LADA, L-A-D-A. -D uh, so anyway, even if you're in primary care and don't really care about type 1 diabetes, I really encourage you to go back and listen to that episode again, at least the first like 10, 15 minutes or whatever, um, because I go into detail and explain how you can make sure that you're diagnosing um, type 1 versus type 2 um, consistently because uh, we see it all the time that um, primary care folks misdiagnose someone and that's because it's confusing. Um, so anyway, so I laid that out um, and so everybody should listen to it. Uh, otherwise, let's get going today with a deep dive into type 2 diabetes. Of course, I'll be covering everything that the pants wants us to know as well as some sweet, sweet pearls from the endocrinology diabetes experts. Let's get going. All right, so let's talk about type 2 diabetes. Um, so essentially, I, I mean, I'm going to start out with kind of the like the nerdy-ish version, like the part that's going to be on the pants, maybe. Um, and then I'm going to give you the analogy that I've started using with patients, and it seems to go okay. Um, all right, so what causes type 2 diabetes? Well, it's essentially a combination of insulin resistance. And yes, I do actually use that word in the endocrinology office. And if a patient is going to understand what's going on, they, they really should have a somewhat of an understanding of what insulin resistance is. Hence, again, why I will share with you my analogy. Um, so it's a combo of insulin resistance and a relative impairment of the body's ability to secrete insulin. So insulin, I, I've, if you notice, Insulin is the word that I've already said twice now. Nowhere in this opening st sentence have I said anything about blood sugar. But that's everything, by and large, if the patient knows anything about their diabetes, they're going to cling to these words, blood sugar, which is good. That's half the battle. But understanding how to treat it is 
is what is why they need to understand a little bit about insulin resistance. Um, so insulin resistance plus or an impairment of of the pancreas being able to secrete insulin, and the etiology is I don't think it's very a hundred percent like a black and white science. Um, it's all I could find that is that it's probably due to both genetic and environmental factors. And we say genetic, of course, because if um, if either one of a patient's parents have type 2 diabetes, um, that patient has already a, just a 50% chance of getting diabetes. Um, and the thing that seems to push them over the edge is weight gain. So we've got these risk factors, which again include genetics, um, especially if it's a parent or like a first-degree relative. Um, but then also just like simply weight gain uh, is another risk factor. Um, and then um, let's see, we've also got um, Hispanic, African-American, and Pacific Islanders are unfortunately at an increased risk. Uh, and patients is with uh, hypertension hyperlo- and hyperlipidemia as well. And um, Weight gain in this, and very specifically, is central obesity, right? So these like kind of beer, beer belly kind of guys, um, or like the what do they call them? Like the apple shaped um, figure, where it's just the obesity is primarily around their abdomen. Um, so those are the risk factors. Um, and let me share with you my analogy that I give with patients now, um, because I really want them to understand insulin. And I, I say that I say, look, you know, I, I get it that you're watching your blood sugars. And I'm so glad that you understand that having a low A1C is important in managing um, your chronic condition. But I need you to understand the role of insulin, because the drugs that we give them um, like help improve their insulin resistance. Um, and so I, I tell them that they, they need to think of insulin, which is a hormone. And every time you say hormone, people automatically think testosterone and estrogen and true, those, those are hormones, but we have many other hormones in the body and insulin is one of them. So it's just a hormone and it is like the air traffic controllers at the airport. It's calling the shots. It's actually in control. And it is in control of the airplanes trying to land at that airport. And the airplanes in this analogy are like blood blood sugar molecules, sugar molecules trying to land um, in the airfield. And if you think about that different foods cause different amount of airplanes trying to land at this airport. So if you have a piece of birthday cake, that's maybe like 500 airplanes trying to land all at once, which is a ton. Um, but, you know, the air traffic control insulin guys are really, really good. And, and like they can handle it um, for a long time. They can handle that. I mean, years to decades even, they can handle it. Um, but it's a good analogy because um, I, I talk about how a birthday cake might send 500 airplanes trying to land at one time, but like an apple may only have 30 airplanes. Or even better, if you eat cheese or beef jerky um, or a handful of nuts, that might only actually be two airplanes trying to land at the same time. So different foods break down into different sugars. And it's the problem of the problem that the air traffic controllers run into is that if you continually try to land 500 airplanes for breakfast, lunch, and dinner, depending on how much 
carbs and sugar you're eating, if you do that long enough, uh, they start to lose their their effectiveness because the guys at the gates who have to be the ones to accept these these sugared airplanes, they are told by the insulin um, air traffic control people, hey, I've got another land of airplane. Hey, I've got another land of airplane. And it just keeps coming and coming and coming. And these gates eventually fill up. And finally, the the gates um, who are like the um, beta, who are like the cells of the body, um, they they get full and they can't have any more sugar airplanes parked there. And finally, the guys who are in control of whether or not they actually, you know, like the guys in the in the like orange and yellow vests with like the light uh, with the light rods um, poles that they, you know, that that they tell the airplane to taxi to the gate. Those guys go, you know what? This is crazy. I'm being told that I need to land the sugar airplane and I got no room in here. Air traffic control has no idea what they're doing. I'm going to stop listening to them. And they kind of go rogue. And so that's where this sense of insulin resistance comes in, is that the air traffic control, the body just stops listening to insulin and saying, you know what? Like, this this is too much. I can't handle this job. I'm not listening to insulin anymore. And so that's where the insulin resistance comes in. The cells just physically can't take any more sugar and, and they just stop listening to insulin. And so anyway, that's that's my analogy. And um, it's uh, not perfect. So anybody who knows anything about air traffic control, uh, please don't at me about this. Um, I'm sorry if that's not exactly how it works. But anyway, it's a, it's a decent analogy. So so I've used. People seem to really understand that insulin is the guy calling the shots and they're, they are insulin resistant because their cells basically just stopped listening to them because they were tired of getting bombarded with blood sugars of 500 um, for three meals a day for the past 15 years. Um, and so they, so they really understand that. And so um, Anyway, that's uh, that's what I use, and patients seem to do pretty well with that. Um, so let's move on. Let's talk about um, the signs and symptoms of type 2 diabetes, which, of course, are super similar to type 1 diabetes, except these are traditionally in older patients. Um, but again, um, with our terrible eating habits, we're actually seeing type 2 diabetes diagnosed in younger and younger patients. So again, even more of a reason for you to really understand the difference on how to diagnose type 2 versus type 1 because somebody who's 16 may actually be type 2 diabetic. Um, but uh, symptoms include of uh, increased thirst, frequent urination, hunger, fatigue, bl- um, blurry vision. Um, I see that a lot actually with my patients. They say that they were having blurry vision for like two weeks um, before they went to the like eye doctor and the eye doctor kind of figured it out. Um, but then a buzzword for the boards is uh, acanthosis nigricans, which is that kind of darkening pigmentation of skin tone. Um, like usually behind the neck is where it classically is. I, maybe it can go other places, but it's pretty much behind the neck um, from what I recall. Uh, all right. So diagnostic criteria for how do you diagnose um, type 2 diabetes? And we already talked about this in type 1. So let's go over it again. Gold standard is a fasting blood sugar over 126. So fasting uh, definition is at least eight hours. um, And then this has to be done on more than two occasions. Um, So fasting blood sugar over 126. Also, um, 
a lot of times in clinic, we actually use a hemoglobin A1C. So hemoglobin A1C greater than 6.5, um, but you can also use a random blood glucose greater than 220, um, and then a two-hour um, uh, blood glucose um, over 200 on an oral glucose tolerance test. So I don't use either one of those two things, but maybe they'll be on the board. So there they are again. Uh, and then we definitely should talk about this notion of prediabetes because a lot of people come through the clinic uh, office and they're worried that they were told they were pre-diabetic before and they want to check up on that. So like, what does pre-diabetes mean? Well, let's talk about it. Uh, diagnostic criteria for prediabetes is an A1C of 5.7 to 6.4. So contrast that with full-blown diabetes, uh, A1C of 6.5. Prediabetes 5.7 to 6.4. Uh, we can also use a fasting blood sugar level, and this is of 100 to 125. Recall that fasting blood sugar level at 126 uh, is solidly in the full blown diabetes um, category, but fasting blood sugar basically of 100 to 125 is pre diabetic. Um, and then there's also a two-hour oral glucose tolerance test of 140 to 199, but I don't think I'm going to put that in my brain. I'm just going to know 5.7 to 6.4. That's just good to know for practice or fasting blood sugar of 100 to 125. These are your diagnostic criteria for prediabetes. Regular diabetes starts at hemoglobin of what? 6.5. Full-blown diabetes starts at a fasting blood glucose level of what? 126. Um, okay, so um, we're going to do med meds at the end of this. I want to talk about um, goals and like basic management for type 2 diabetes. Um, so first line uh, management in type 2 diabetes is like a lot of things. Diet and exercise, meaning this is a lifestyle change. And I hate to use the word diet, and I tell my people that. I said, look, when I say the word diet – Everybody thinks of like Weight Watchers or the Atkins, and that's 100% not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about we need to change the way you eat, yes, for the rest of your life. And that's why we call it a lifestyle change. Um, and, and then I say like, you know, it took you 15, 20 years to get here. I mean, this is most people, right? Um, but like, I think I had like a 32-year-old who had it. Um, but anyway, so, you know, this took like decades for you to – for you to create. And so, um, you know, you, you owe it to yourself essentially to be kind to your body and change the way that you're eating because the way you had been eating got you diabetes. So I don't, I don't call it a diet because a diet usually indicates something that's short term, but this isn't, this is for the rest of your life. Um, and essentially, um, all we want as far as diet in these folks is, um, to eat, like healthy and well-balanced. Okay, well, great. Well, what does that mean? That means that 50% of your plate is vegetables, 25% of your plate is carbs or sugar, and the other 25% of your plate is protein. Now, I could go way more into this because nutrition is such a huge part of um, type 2 diabetes, but just know that there's such a thing called um, diabetes educators out there in the world. Your endocrinology local office will definitely know about them, but if you don't have any of the endocrinologists around, maybe you can hook your, up, your patient up with a um, 
diabetes educator because they will go into all of this. But just know that the regular um, guidelines for like the regular nutritional guidelines that say that carbs should be like 50% of your diet, like that's terrible. Like nobody should be eating that way. Even my preceptor says, even people who don't have diabetes should be eating that way or should not be eating that way. So just as long as the patient is filling up their plate with 50% vegetables, 25% carbs and sugar, and then of course you have to explain to them that special K is sugar, orange juice is sugar, pasta is sugar, rice is sugar. All of those things are sugar. I'm not saying that they can't eat any of those things. I'm just saying that they have to pick one at a meal and they have to have vegetables and they have to have protein with it. Um, And they can all be kind of commensurate. So if like the patient only has like a small snack, like let's say the the patient only wants to have an apple. Okay, that's fine. You don't have to eat like a whole like plate of vegetables. Um, But if you have an apple, um, you should also eat a protein with it because the protein actually slows down uh, the sugar bomb that goes off in your body when you eat carbs and sugar. So um, adding... Uh, things like a cheese stick or nuts or like straight out like meat um, uh, is really helpful. And my most favorite thing to do is to scrutinize somebody's breakfast choices because a lot of people start their day, of course, with like cereal or like waffles. I mean, most people know waffles aren't that awesome for you or like oatmeal, oatmeal, cereal, and like a bagel and an English muffin are my most favorite things because I like to say, well, that's great. So you have a bowl of sugar, and then you eat a banana, and that is sugar. And then you have a nice glass of orange juice, also sugar. And so I, I say like, well, it sounds like you're having a lot of sugar for breakfast. And there are total, a lot of them are just totally blown away that they're just eating eating and drinking sugar. Um, and then a hard, hard and fast rule we tell these folks is don't drink your sugar. So no more juice. Um, you know, really no more soda as long as we're trying to get your blood sugar under control. Um, some of these things we can add back in a little bit later, but for right now, you know, our primary goal is to get their A1C under control. And the best way to do that is to just don't drink sugar. So no orange juice, um, no soda, no juice boxes, um, and then really try to be um, careful about what they order at like these coffee places. Um, most people have no idea how much sugar is in one of those drinks. Um, and so we say, look, if you can't, if you absolutely need your latte or your mocha, just try to ask them for like, instead of five pumps, like put two pumps in, like, it's not ideal. Yes, it's still sugar. But you know, you got to give these people, you know, a little something like don't take my coffee habit away from me. I mean, even I have a latte on the weekends. So you know, you got to live a little. Um, But I say that my most favorite breakfast, my most favorite meal to scrutinize is breakfast, because when I tell them I want them to stop eating an English muffin, um, along with a bowl of cereal or a banana, I say, you know, pick one of those things. And, and let's add in maybe some eggs. How about some bacon? Um, And like their eyes just light up because of course, for the longest time, we all thought that eating fat caused fat. And that's actually not showing to be entirely true. Uh, Eating sugar causes people to gain weight. So I say, look, pick one of the sugar things that you want in the morning, whichever one your favorite thing is, pick it except for the juice right now. Maybe you can have it later, but pick one of the solid food sugars that you were eating and then replace the other one with eggs or protein um, or bacon. And people usually give me a hug when I tell them that they can have bacon. Now they can't eat the whole package because um, actually after a certain amount, it like 
protein in high amounts actually turns into sugar. Your body can't um, like use it effectively. And so um, if you have high amounts of of protein intake, it like in one sitting, um, it actually unfortunately gets um, broken down and stored as sugar and um, uh, glycogen in the liver. Um, so that's not good. We don't want to do that. Hence, another reason why Atkins diet is just it's not a not a great idea. Um, but protein in moderate amounts absolutely is. So anyway, that's kind of like the nutritional aspect that I um, give the talk to my patients about. Um, so. Uh, again, going back, what started this whole thing, um, basic management, first line diet and exercise. Um, and there's studies that showed, I think it was 20 to 30 minutes of brisk activity three times a week, uh, was enough to, um, help blood sugar levels. So for some people, that's just kind of like walking at a brisk pace and, and that's totally fine. I'm not saying people got to go out to the gym and like spend money on gym memberships. I mean, the best thing to do is like, just walk a little bit. Um, try to do a couple push-ups. uh, you know, tr- try to do a couple squats if their, if their knees will handle it. Um, just, just walking three times a week is actually good enough. Um, so everybody's got to start somewhere. Um, and I just try to be encouraging about, um, that if they really hone in on their diet, um, you know, maybe in a couple months, we can try to focus on exercise so that they're not overwhelmed. Cause this is a lot of change for a lot of people and you don't want to scare them away. You don't want to say all these bad things, like get rid of your daily latte. Um, you know, that's that whole, like you have to meet the patient where they are so that they keep coming back to you. And the nice thing is that the good, um, uh, the the better drugs that are on the market now that we're going to get into here in a moment um, really are helpful for not only helping patients lose weight, which most of these patients really, really want, um, but also just in general, uh, keeping their blood sugars better under better control. So if you can, you know, tweak a few things during that first session, as well as um, either initiating or changing their, their medication um, regimen, um, you really can deliver a win within those first three months, and that is encouraging, and then the patient will want to come back to you. So, you know, pick your battles like with all things with your patients, but um, in, a, in a big nutshell, those are the things that I talk about, um, about how we want to first line attack this diabetes um, with diet and exercise. Okay, moving on in basic diabetes management. Uh, Next up, target A1C is less than 7.0%, and it really should be checked at least every three months. Uh, If the patient is really well controlled, you might be able to space that out to six months. Um, That's for the boards. Um, In real life, if you have just had an initial visit with somebody and have made a whole bunch of like diet and lifestyle changes and medication changes, seeing them in six weeks is not necessarily out of control. Um, but according to the pants, recheck their A1C every three months. Um, if they are not controlled and if they are controlled, you can space it out to every six, uh, every six months. Um, Target level for your preprandial glucose. So pre um, preprandial, just fancy word for before meal. Prandial um, being the root word there, meaning meal time. So preprandial glucose of eighty to one ten. Um, and then uh, there's a special population side note here um, that in our pregnant folks, we actually want um, 
actually, I don't know. I don't know why everybody always like, and our pregnant people, like, can we just say women? Like women are pregnant. So like in pregnant women, uh, um, we want their preprandial glucose to be 60 to 90. Um, and that actually extends into uh, like a bedtime and fasting glucose as well. We really try to keep um, pregnant gals under super, super, super tight control. So like under 100 for them. Um, so preprandial glucose, though, in normal type 2 diabetics, 80 to 110. And then postprandial glucose. So again, after meal glucose. And this is at about um, an hour and a half to two hours after meal. We want it under 140. Um, let's see, moving on, um, other referrals that the patients need to, um, have include, um, eye exams and these need to be every year and they need to be dilated. I don't know how many people in my endocrinology office tried to pimp me about the type of eye exam, but they were always very careful to make sure that the word dilated eye exam is in there. And of course, dilated just means like pupil dilation because you can see way better all the things. Um, so that happens annually. Annual dilated eye exam, um, annual foot examination, because of course we want to um, see uh, that they're not having any neuropathy set in, especially um, in their lower extremities. And we're going to get into complications here in a minute. Um, and then finally, um, that the patient needs to be started on an ACE inhibitor um, or ARB if they have microalbumin show up on their um, urine screen. So um, essentially the whole reason why we check this microalbumin um, to like creatinine, um, which is actually how it shows up in the computer of what it is you need to order and what you're looking at. Uh, the reason that we're worried about that is because protein showing up in the patient's urine is uh, actually the first step in diabetic nephropathy. Um, so it's the, like the first thing that happens if the kidneys are starting to be under assault because of these high, super high blood sugars. Um, so the uh, pearls that I have from the endocrinology office is um, if, if their microalbumin comes back roughly under 200, you actually can just go ahead and focus on better blood glucose control um, because this is um, like a, it can be a transient finding, meaning if the patient's out of control, you might find microalbumin show up on their, on their urine screen. But if they get under better control, it actually can reverse itself. So it, could, so it can kind of come and go. And that is largely based on what their blood sugar levels are. So again, if microalbumin is under 200, you largely can encourage the patient to focus on blood glucose control um, and try to, you know, manage it with diet and exercise. Um, the words of wisdom are to really only try that for about four weeks or so. Um, maybe stretch it out to that six-week visit um, and recheck it then. Um, but if it is, if it's still high after they come back and have tried diet and exercise, then it's actually time to refer them over to nephrology and make sure that their kidneys are okay. Now, what happens if you check their microalbumin to creatinine um, and it shows up like in the thousands? Like I had a lady last week who was over 2,000. Um, she needs to be sent to um, nephrology pretty much immediately. Um, but uh, the on the boards, 
Um, I think they'll probably just care um, if we know that they need to be started on an ACE inhibitor, um, which is like the prills, so lisinopril and anything else that ends in pril. Um, so essentially start them, start them on the ACE inhibitor if there is um, microalbumin um, present on their urine screen. Um, let's see. Uh, another little pearl that I can give is that, um, in endocrinology, we actually don't care if you start an ACE or an ARB, um, but there's a bigger push to start using ARBs, um, because they have the same efficacy as ACE inhibitors, but they actually have a little less side effects. And very specifically, um, uh, the ARB of choice is Herbisartan, and that's spelled with I, so I-R-B, Herbisartan, um, is actually his preferred, um, ACE or, uh, ARB rather. So that's what he uses a lot. Um, and then you can do kind of plus or minus one of the thiazides. Um, so his general rule of thumb, so let's say the patient comes in with a, you know, 1500 microalbumin. So you pretty much know that you need to like start an ACE or an ARB and refer onto nephrology. Um, but, uh, the cutoff, slash like the, his guideline for whether or not he includes a thiazide in his herbisartan is essentially whether or not the blood pressure is over roughly 150 over 90. Um, so if it's underneath that and they're not already on um, a medication for blood pressure and you are the one who has to start it, go ahead and reach for probably an ARB over an ACE. He likes herbisartan. And then if blood pressure is over 150 over about, you know, 90-ish for both of those numbers, um, then you can think about adding a thiazide in. Because, I mean, at that point, you really want to get their blood pressure under control as well. Um, so, uh, if their um, microalbumin and blood pressure are stable and the, if the microalbumin comes back as negative, you really only need to check that every year um, according to my preceptor. Um, and then I have a note here to remind everyone listening that high blood pressure in and of itself can also cause protein in the, in the urine. Uh, and so if the patient has both of those issues present, both the protein plus high blood pressure, um, A, you need to start them on the ACE and ARB like we just talked, but two, um, try to fix the blood glucose first, um, and see if that changes anything. Um, and, after you change the blood sugar, if the patient is still having uncontrolled blood pressure, so meaning maybe they were, maybe they have high blood pressure, but they were already on medication, and oh, now now all of a sudden they've got um, protein in the urine. Um, uh, rather than like add more medications to their uh, blood pressure regimen, try to fix their blood sugar first and see if that brings down their blood pressure. Um, and then just kind of the endocrinology rule of thumb, even though this is a little bit outside of type 2 diabetes, but um, like uncontrolled and like recalcitrant um, and refractory blood hypertension um, really only sets in after like you've added three or four medications. So like if the patient is controlled on two medications and their blood pressure is fine, like that's not really anything to get excited about. But if they're on three and four blood pressure medications and their blood pressure is still out of control, there actually may be something else going on potentially in the endocrinology world. So I'm not going to go into that right now, but 
I mean, it's possible that they have um, maybe like an aldosterone-secreting tumor or like a pheochromocytoma um, is kind of a board's favorite for just hypertension that's out of control and the patient's already on three or four medications. Um, so last little bit about blood pressure is that um, you really want to keep tight blood pressure control on our diabetics, um, and this is listed at under 130 over 80. So um, uh, if you listen to my hypertensive podcast episode, um, you maybe would remember that there's been some new guidelines that came out. And basically, they're saying everybody really needs to be under 130 over 80. Um, so that's kind of the uh, the gold standard now. Um, and then as far as statins go, new guidelines for statins also came out. So they're recommending statins in patients with diabetes who are 40 or above. And we talked about um, what happens when you hit 75. Essentially, the guidelines say between age 40 and 75. Essentially, if the patient's over 70, it just becomes a patient preference. Um, after, of course, you educate them on why they might stop it or why they might continue it. Um, but uh, we want to start a statin for any type 2 diabetic over the age of 40 who has an LDL um, essentially over the over 70. If you recall, normally we want our LDL levels under 100, but in diabetes, folks, um, we um, diabetes is considered a, like a, um, a CVD risk factor, a cardiovascular disease risk factor. So we actually want their LDL under tighter control. Um, so uh, adding a high-intensity statin to pa- diabetic patients age 40 and over with LDL cholesterols um, greater than 70. Um, So that is blood pressure and statin. Uh, Okay, two other um, endocrinology-related things that I want to talk about, um, kind of just pearls, really, is that recall that if somebody is hyperthyroid, that can actually increase blood sugar and worsen both type 1 and type 2 diabetes. Um, So we just checked TSH, T3, and T4, uh, across the board in in almost all of our patients just to make sure that they don't have any thyroid problem because, again, hyperthyroid can actually worsen blood glucose control in type 1 and type 2 diabetics. Something else that can worsen blood glucose control are steroid joint injections, so people getting these in their knees, knees or shoulders. Um, wouldn't that be funny if that was the – if that was a plural of knees, kneeses? Anyway – my brain is my brain is not smart. Um, uh, so steroid injections can also raise blood raise blood sugar um, for about one to two weeks is all. So um, just kind of like a passing you know, flip through their chart and see kind of a thing. Um, so that that's that's all the pearls that I have. And then finally, before we get into medications, I just want to talk about complications from uncontrolled diabetes. Right. So the whole reason that we want a hemoglobin A one C of um, under seven, so essentially 6.9 is actually what my preceptor likes. If they're at seven, he kind of actually considers them on the fence a little bit. He really wants to see them in the sixes. But once they get in the sixes, he says, he's like, look, I don't care if it's 6.9 or 6.0. If you're under seven, the studies show that you significantly decreased your risk for all of these complications. Um, And let's talk about those complications. So um, number one, 
uh, is neuropathy. Uh, so that's like tingling sensations. Usually starts in the lower extremities, but can also happens, happen in fingertips. Uh, and the pearl here is that it's actually bilateral. So a lot of people may have like weird spine impingements or whatever, and they have tingling just on one side of the body. That is unlikely to be related to type 2 diabetes. We're looking for usually bilateral um, neuropathy here. So tingling or loss of sensation. Again, this is why we do a diabetic foot, diabetic foot exam every year. So neurop neuropathy um, and the most common uh, pattern is the stocking glove. So like it feels like it, it starts in their, like their fingertips is the worst and then maybe it gets a little bit better as it moves more proximal to the body. But um, stocking glove pattern is maybe a buzzword for pants. Um, other things, so we think of like neurons, right? And so we um, rightfully think of tingling or loss of sensation, but there's um, actually other nerve issues that can pop up. And uh, orthostatic hypotension is one of them. Now, a lot of people just kind of already have that for a wide myriad of reasons. Classically, um, it can be because they're almost always like volume volume down. So everybody just needs to drink more water. But there you have it. Officially, uh, orthostatic hypotension can be a complication of diabetes. Gastroparesis, um, meaning like delayed gastric emptying, so to speak. Um, so gastro meaning stomach, paresis meaning like, you know, paralyzed or slow. So gastroparesis. Um, and then a buzzword also cranial nerve three palsy. And I forgot what that is. So I'm gonna have to go look at that later. Um, but those are, those are the neuropathy things that can happen. Uh, in the clinic, we really only talk about the um, losing sensation in the tips of your toes and the tips of your fingers. And that's pretty much what I keep it down to. Um, other complications includes retinopathy, which is actually, unfortunately, the leading cause of blindness in people, I believe it's over age 40. So retinopathy, so people can lose their eyes. And I pretty much just say, you know, if you like, if you like your eyes, if you like the tips of your fingers and the tips of your toes, you will try your best to get your A1C um, to 6.9 or below. And then the very last one, oh, wait a minute, uh, buzzwords for retinopathy includes dot or flame hemorrhages and cotton wool spots. So that would be retinopathy um, uh, associated from out of, cons out of control blood sugars. And finally is nephropathy, which we've already talked about. Um, that's why we check a um, microalbumin to creatinine level, um, seeing if they're spilling protein. Um, so nephropathy um, diabetes is a kidney killer. Um, and essentially what happens is that the patient just has a progressive loss of kidney function. Eventually, when that's been going on for too long or too much, that is when we see the microalbuminuria pop up. Um, and then unfortunately, uh, diabetes is the most common cause of end-stage renal disease, so people having to be on dialysis. Um, so not, uh, not good complications there whatsoever. Okay, so last topic for today's episode in all things type 2 diabetes, of course, is medication. Um, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start with metformin, but then after that, I'm going to order these meds in order of most used to least used. And in fact, the last three on the list, I have never seen my endocrinology PA start any patient on. In fact, he will actively take patients off them. Now, of course, he's a specialist, but uh, still, um, that's how he does it. So 
we need to talk about all of these because, of course, the pants hasn't kept up with the latest and breaking things. Uh, so this should still be helpful for uh, those of you who are pants studiers, as well as those of us who are interested in potentially helping type 2 diabetes patients at some point over our career. Uh, all right, so let's get into medications. Like I said, number one, metformin. And that, of course, is the brand name. Uh, some patients um, primarily know the generic name. Um, if they know the generic name, they know gluco glucophage. Uh, there's a couple others listed on there, but I've never heard a patient call it by that. So metformin, mechanism of action for metformin. It decreases hepatic glucose production. Of course, fancy word for saying it just puts the kibosh on the liver actually creating glucose. Um, and then it also um, decreases intestinal glucose absorption. So we're telling the liver to don't make as much glucose. And then we're also decreasing the amount that the, that the intestine uh, ends up absorbing later. And because of this, uh, because of its mechanism of action, this is why metformin actually leads to weight loss. And I think this is probably one of the reasons why my endocrinology guy uh, actually still uses it because, as we talked earlier, one of the big problems in diabetes, in fact, it can push you over the edge of actually getting diabetes, is weight gain. So the fact that metformin causes weight loss, he still kind of regards it as a decent little drug. Not that it's necessarily his first one that he reaches for, but if somebody's on it, he doesn't necessarily take people off like he does sulfonylurea, for instance. Um, we'll get there. Um, but uh, that, So that's the MOA of metformin. Um, some of the side effects now, and these are legitimate, whether you're studying for the boards or actually going to do this in real life, the side effect of nausea, vomiting, and especially diarrhea, I'd say even diarrhea over the other two, it is a known side effect of metformin. Now, here's the kicker, though. The metformin comes in an immediate release and extended release. And the extended release doesn't actually cause all that many problems with diarrhea. So for a patient who says that they can't be on metformin because it causes diarrhea, your very next question should be, well, was it the extended release or not? And 90% of the time, they have no idea. But usually you can, if you actually want to switch somebody or put somebody on metformin and they're totally against it, usually you can talk them into saying, all right, look, let's try the extended release and go from there. Sometimes people say, okay, sometimes they don't. But uh, that's metformin, side effect, explicitly diarrhea, that's real, happens in real life. Um, try extended release instead. Uh, now, let's see, um, a board's question, for, like a scary side effect is lactic acidosis. Uh, so lactic acidosis goes with metformin. Um, other special things you need to know about metformin is that it needs to be stopped 24 hours before a patient has a contrast dye study. Um, so 24 hours before, sometimes you don't always know that, but just FYI, like if they get to the hospital and need one stat, like eh, there's not too much you can do. Um, but officially, it needs to be stopped 24 hours before a patient receives con contrast dye. And then you are allowed to start it 48 hours after they've had the contrast load, but you need to monitor for their creatinine. And if their creatinine goes above 1.5, then you 
need to stop using the metformin again. So two instances in which metformin needs to be DC'd, at least temporarily, 24 hours before contrast dye study, and then after you initiate it 48 hours later, if the patient's creatinine goes up to above 1.5, um, then you need to stop it again. Um, other other things that we need to be worried about with metformin um, is that it can be hard on the kidneys. And this, of course, is why it needs to be stopped before we do uh, any contrast dye and why we watch the creatinine, of course, right? You know, creatinine is um, a marker of how your kidneys are doing. So the other marker, of course, that we can look at beyond creatinine for how are your kidneys doing is the EGFR. So if a patient has an EGFR of less than 30, um, it is actually contraindicated to begin metformin. Now, albeit, of course, a patient who's got an EGFR less than 30, they've probably got a, a lot more um, problems in their kidney world. Um, and whether or not they can't be on metformin anymore is probably not their biggest concern because an EGFR uh, under 30 is pretty significant. Now, for people who are above that, because of course, we've talked that diabetes is a kidney killer. So a handful of these patients do end up getting diabetic nephropathy. And so monitoring their GFRs is, of course, a huge deal to watch for that because it's a known complication. So turns out, it's not necessarily recommended for patients who have GFRs between 30 and 45. Now, my endocrinology team actually says it's they'll use it up until about 40, and then they'll just go ahead and get and um, switch to another medication. And their whole reasoning, of course, is that there's plenty of other medications now um, that are that not kidney killers, so they just ditch out at 40. But officially, maybe for the pants between 30 and 45, that is when metformin may not be recommended. I really don't think that's going to be on the pants, but whatever. There it is. Uh, benefit, again, to metformin is that it's uh, it improves um, weight loss, so it assists with weight loss. It's also inexpensive because there's a generic version of it. Um, and then, fun fact, um, if you give it to ladies who have PCOS, it can actually increase their fertility, which for a, a few of the women that I've seen who came in for PCOS, they actually were referred over because they were having fertility problems. And so, of course, usually first line for PCOS um, beyond like getting on a birth control is metformin. And a, because they usually have some sort of like the metabolic syndrome going on and we need to bring their blood sugars down anyway. Um, but interestingly enough, it, like I said, it increases fertility. Now, whether or not that's tied to lower blood sugars, yeah, maybe that's the case, but I can't speak intelligently about that. Um, so I'll just blather it out into the world and you can decide for yourself or go even better. Go look it up and then uh, at me and let me know. Uh, so that's metformin. And I, like I said, I only started there because that's the thing that everybody expects me to talk about. So I'm going to get that out of the way. Uh, so now you can actually pay attention to some of the other medications that have come on the market in the past 10 or so years. And they really are uh, really good drugs. So by and large, the number one thing that my endocrinology PA uses is this class of drug called the GLP agonist. And these are the medications that all end in tides. Excuse me, they all end in tides. And the mnemonic that I came up for this is the GLP, the GLP-1 agonists will tide you over until your next meal. And that is because one of the four mechanisms of action is that it actually tells your brain that you're not hungry. So a lot of people actually 
not that they lose their appetite, but they the thing that we end up cautioning them against is saying, look, you may have five or six bites of your meal and feel like you're full. And that's okay. That's the medicine happening and go with it. Because uh, if you actually end up eating through that sensation, meaning forcing yourself to eat more food, you may actually get nauseous and vomit. And and those two things do actually happen from time to time. Obviously, it depends on the patient, but that's the thing. So going back, GLP-1 agonists, and I didn't write down what it means, sorry, but GLP-1 agonists. Um, and let's talk about their mechanism of, of action because there's four things that it does. And on some of the practice pants tests that I've taken, I've actually gotten questions about not necessarily the GLP-1, but about this MOA. And then I had to pick that these were things um, that GLP-1 agonists did. So GLP-1 agonists, the tides will tide you over until your next meal. Their mechanism of action is actually four things, I believe. Number one, um, they cause a decrease in blood sugar because they mimic this hormone called an incretin. Incretin? Maybe that's how it's pronounced. I should have looked that up. Sorry, guys. Um, but it's, uh, I did look up that what the hell is an incretin. It is one of two major hormones that is released by the small intestine when we eat food. And again, this is a hormone that travels up to the brain and says, hey, guess what? You are not hungry anymore. You should stop eating. You're full. So this is an awesome drug. Um, and uh, the buzzword that goes with it is this dumb word that I can't pronounce the Incretin, maybe that's it. Um, I n c r e t i n. Incretin, incretin, maybe that's it. Ugh, sorry, guys. Uh, okay, but incretin goes with GLP one agonist. Um, it also another mechanism is that it causes an insulin dependent um, secretion. Well, I said that backwards. It ca it causes a blood sugar dependent response of insulin secretion, meaning the more your blood sugar rises, the more this drug tells your body to send out insulin, which is phenomenal. Like that's super smart. Uh, finally, it also decreases glucagon and also delays gastric emptying again. So there's like more food staying in the stomach. So you're feeling full longer. So maybe you can guess one of the huge benefits of this medication is that it results in weight loss, largely because of decreased appetite for the reasons that we've already talked about. So the really interesting thing about GLP-1 agonists is that there's actually one brand name that is marketed as a weight loss medication. Now, it's got a completely different name from the one that we use for diabetics. Uh, diabetics, we use um, a medicine by the brand name of Victoza, but it literally the exact same drug just targeted for folks who are exclusively looking to lose weight and aren't diabetic per se. That medication is called Sexenda, S-A-X-E-N-D-A, Sexenda. So that's just weight loss. And then its counterpart, or not even counterpart, the exact same medication is called Victoza. That's the one we use in the diabetes suite. So really interesting. Um, and maybe maybe you can tell already why the GLP-1 agonists are the very first line number one drug, because they cause weight loss 
And there really is no, they're super safe because they can't cause a hypoglycemia, which as we'll get in later is a huge problem with some of these other medications. Um, so GLP-1 agonists, again, are really the first line thing that my PA in endocrinology reaches for because they're, it's impossible for them to create a low blood sugar unless, of course, they're paired with a medication that can cause a low blood sugar. But that's not their fault. That's just, you know, the jerk that they wrote it in with. Uh, so that is GLP-1 agonist benefit, um, of course, weight loss. Um, and again, we tell the patients, be careful not to eat beyond you actually feeling not hungry anymore. Just stop. Um, the other nice thing about GLP-1 agonists and I don't say this in the clinic, but I came across it when I was studying f to make notes for this episode. But there's also a reduced cardiovascular mortality in patients with known CVD. So that's a plus. So really, these GLPA1 agonists are just really good good little drugs. Um, some, some of their side effects, again, they may cause a hypoglycemia if they um, are taken in conjunction with other medications that can cause hypoglycemia. Um, these are injectables. I mean, like, like using a teeny tiny little needle. Now, they're nothing like patients are thinking about insulin from like 25 years ago. These needles are super, super, super tiny. And I even tell my patients, I said, look, if you if your vision, if your eyesight isn't that great, you may not even see the needle. It's literally that small. And absolutely every single patient of mine who is who has expressed a fear of needles and doesn't believe me even after I tell them that if they don't have good vision, they probably won't be able to see the needle. A hundred percent of them after we do this injectable, because we do it right here in clinic, a hundred percent of them have admitted that it really wasn't that bad at all. So these are officially injected, but super teeny, teeny, tiny little needles. So nobody should be afraid of them. Um, and some of these medications, some of the GLP-1 agonists are done on a weekly basis. Those are obviously the best ones. I mean, who doesn't want to do, who doesn't want to manage their diabetes, but with a once weekly injection, that medication is, its brand name is called Ozempic. That's the one that my guy really uh, tries for and hopes that people's insurance will pay for it. But of course, half the time insurance doesn't. So we have to reach to something else. Um, but some of them, again, are only once a week. And um there's another one that you have to do it every day. So whatever. But uh, again, GLP-1 agonists are really the best medication that we should be giving to people as they're super safe and promote weight loss. Um, the unfortunate side effect of them, other than maybe causing hypoglycemia, is that there's a frequent side effect of nausea. And that can happen pretty much it's only when you start the medication de novo. So like your first couple weeks on the medication and it lasts for a handful of days and then usually should go away. But as the body acclimates to the drug, that kind of nausea and plus or minus vomiting, which is not as common, but some people do admit to the nausea and that really should go away. So you can kind of ramp um, these people up on lower doses of the medication 
and then increase every week or so as tolerated. Um, but again, that usually goes away. But again, you, you caution the patient that if they if their brain tells them that they're full after like four bites, they should stop. Um, because again, one, if you recall, one of the mechanisms of, of action from GLP-1 agonists is that they delay gastric emptying. So really and truly, if a patient continues to eat and they're being told, their brain says, hey, guess what? I'm full. Their stomach is probably full as well. And so if they keep eating, not only are they going to get nauseous, but yeah, they may actually vomit. And I've only had a handful of patients actually say that they vomit, but many more of them say, yeah, I got nauseous. And so I stopped. Um, And again, this is what leads to weight loss. Uh, final final thing on GLP-1 agonists is the, um, you need to be cautious in patients who already have a known history of gastroparesis for reasons that I just said. That's one of the mechanisms of action. So maybe not ideal to give it to somebody who already has a slow gut. We don't want them to make them nauseous and vomit literally every single time they eat. So caution in that, but it's not a strong contraindication. So that was GLP-1 agonists. Actually, I forgot to mention one of the uh, MOAs of metformin, sorry, is that it also improves insulin sensitivity by increasing the peripheral glucose uptake and utilization. Okay, what the hell does that mean? So it just, it improves the insulin sensitivity. And if you remember, we talked about how part of the reason that people get diabetes type 2 is because they become insulin resistant. So metformin actually can help by improving insulin sensitivity via increasing the peripheral glucose use meaning like your the peripheral body, like your muscles, essentially. So your muscles do a better job of uptaking the sugar that is floating around in your bloodstream. So that's awesome. So again, metformin is a really neat little drug. And my endocrinology PA really does use it from time to time. It's not something that he will actively and begrudgingly and disgruntledly take people off of for having been on um, he does use it occasionally. Uh, so anyway, wanted to make sure I covered all my bases there on metformin. Now that I have, let's move on. Um, the th- second most common medication after GLP-1 agonists that my preceptor uses are the SGLT2 inhibitors. And somebody told me when I was studying this during the didactic year that the mnemonic for SGLT2 is C-glucose-leave-tubules. Um, because that gives you a clue to what the MOA is. So um, its mechanism is, in the nerdy language, it lowers renal glucose threshold, which results in an increased urinary glucose excretion. Okay, again, what does that mean? Basically, it lowers the threshold at which the point, at which the point, at, at which point when the kidneys say, okay, I'll go ahead and pee you out. So the kidneys are basically peeing out more sugar. And uh, something that I learned in my rotation here is that this actually only kicks in when your blood sugar levels are over 110. Um, so that's pretty interesting, I thought. Um, side effects. So we might be able to imagine what some side effects of this medication might be if we're peeing out more concentrated sugar, concentrated urine, you might expect that 
we could get some infections down there, most notably in women. So we might get yeast infections and UTI. And yes, those are two things that we say to every single female patient that we start our medications on. It absolutely happens. Not a lot. It's pretty much if ladies are prone to one of those um, UTIs or yeast infections, unfortunately, we see it a little bit more commonly in them. Um, But um, in men, we don't really tell it and tell those two side effects in men just because I asked my preceptor and he said that he'd, he'd never actually seen it. And then wouldn't you know, lo and behold, during my rotation, we actually had a man, a patient come back and say that he had gotten a UTI. And my preceptor was so concerned about that because he had never seen it in his like 11 year career that he actually sent the patient to urology. And I think we ended up getting the notes back that urology ended up running a PSA on him. And it was super elevated, which, of course, is scary because PSA is something that we can check um, if we're worried about prostate cancer. Um, We can also see it in infections, but um, also for, like I said, prostate cancer. So I ended up following around this um, patient via his chart. And he went back to urology and had his PSA PSA levels drawn, I don't know, a week or whatever later. Um, And they had come back down. So essentially, it looks like the urology team had pretty much had, um, had chalked it up to him having some sort of like mild prostate infection at the time, um, causing um, this UTI. And oh, he was also having like a weak stream. Um, So we were worried, of course, you know, for BPH with him. Um, uh, So anyway, just uh, really interesting, because like I said, my guy, my preceptor had never seen that problem before. And then lo and behold, we get one in our office. But again, generally speaking, uh, the only side effect should really be with women for yeast infections and UTIs. Um, Officially, also, just to be thorough, apparently, side effects also include bone fractures, lower limb amputations, I don't know where that came from, uh, AKI, DKA, and formally, my pants prep books are telling me that the long-term safety of SGLT2 inhibitors Uh, their safety is not well established. So take that for what it's worth. But like I said, my, my preceptor really likes the SGLT2 inhibitors, um, not usually as a primary medication, but as an additive, he will almost always add that into somebody's medication um, regimen, along with, of course, the GLP-1 agonist uh, as his number one. And then eventually, as their blood sugar levels come under control, Uh, again, depending if the patient stops eating so many carbs and sugars, um, it's theoretically possible that he will discontinue the SGLT2 inhibitor at a certain point and the patient will just be on like a once a week injection of the GLP-1 agonist. So that's really neat. Um, Benefits of the the SGLT2 inhibitors, um, uh, also weight loss, which is nice, of course, because the patient is, I don't know, I guess, peeing out a whole bunch. Um, but also going on with the, going on with the weight loss is that you can actually see a reduction in systolic 
blood pressure. And because of that, they think that translates into a reduced cardiovascular mortality in patients, again, with established CVD. So this is a really good drug if you've got a patient who has diabetes and hypertension. And I'll tell you, that is probably like 50% of the patients who walk through my door. They've got both of those things. So again, the SGLT2 inhibitors are just a really good medication because they only kick in when your blood sugar's at 110, even though I guess officially one of their side effects could be hypoglycemia. Again, that's according to the pants books. Um, we don't caution necessarily patients against that. It's we just we just really don't see it in real life because again these medications only kick in at a blood sugar level of 110 and greater. So we we don't get worried about hypoglycemia in our patients, but according to the pants books, maybe we should. Um, but again, so the benefits, weight loss, reduction in systolic blood pressure, translating to a reduced cardiovascular um, mortality in patients with already established um, uh, CVD risks. Uh, so there's that. So moving on from SGLT2 inhibitors. Oh my gosh, I'm sorry, I forgot to mention their name. <laughs> These, um, the mnemonic is like the flozinzins. So like canagliflozin, I, mean, I don't even know how to say them. And if I've been in endocrinology for six weeks and I still don't know how to say these medication names, just you don't get worried about pronouncing the generic names. Just being, just be able to recognize them. So the, uh, the suffix on all of these are going to end in flozin, F-L-O-Z-I-N. So of course, you know, flozin, like the sugar be flozin. Uh, so there's the SGLT2 inhibitors. They all end in flozin. All right, moving on. Next up is the thiazolidinides. Again, I really should know how to pronounce these, but I do know how to pronounce the main one that they that we use, and that one is called pioglitazone. Um, and that one actually, that is the generic name, pioglitazone. The brand name is Actos. Most patients call it by Actos because Actos is way easier to say than pioglitazone. Um, otherwise, they call it the pig medication because P-I-O-G um, is how it's spelled. But I guess that's a weird prefix for most people who know English. So anyway, um, the really unique thing about pioglitazone is that is the only thing that works against insulin resistance. And again, so many of these patients, I mean, essentially, if you have type 2 diabetes, you can almost guarantee that you have some degree of insulin resistance. So pioglitazone is a really neat unique little drug that my endocrinology PA uses in probably at least half of our patients. Um, and because it's exclusively for the insulin resistance factor, we add this into patients who are on huge doses of insulin. And we'll get to this later, but insulin is really like the last thing you want to do in a type 2 diabetic, but some people need it. Sometimes you just can't get around it. And some of these patients are on like 100 units like twice a day, which is just crazy. And so stopping their insulin altogether would not be safe. I mean, borderline malpractice. But what we usually do is we'll drop down their insulin, cut it either in half or like um, bring it down to 75% of the level that they're at. And then using some of these other newer medications, we can actually get them under better blood sugar control. And so again, for the, patient, for the patients who are on a ton of insulin, um, 
we will use the pioglitazone with them, again, in conjunction with like the GLP-1 agonists and again, the SGLT-2 inhibitors. So let's see, what else can I say about pioglitazone? Uh, it's a good little drug, tiny little pill. Oh, it takes 30 full days to kick in. That's not a pants thing. That's just something that you should know um, if, in real life if you're going to use it. So it's really important that a patient consistently takes it every day. And it's a tiny little pill. And again, it, there's a generic version. And most people can actually get it for free with the discount card. So patients really shouldn't have a problem taking um, pioglitazone. Uh, so the mechanism of action Oh, God. It increases insulin sensitivity in the peripheral receptor site, adipose, and muscle tissues. Um, so again, insulin sensitivity. There it is. It increases insulin sensitivity. And explicitly, the pants books want you to know that it has no effect on the pancreas beta cells. So no effect there. It's got nothing to do with trying to affect the pancreas in any way. And it's got everything to do with the insulin receptors in the adipose and, mus in, and muscle cells. So again, the really, really the only thing that works for insulin sensitivity. Now, side effects of pioglitazone, which again is a thiozyolidone, whatever that is. Um, side effects are legit and you need to know about it, obviously for the pants, but also in real life because it's legit. Possible fluid retention leading to possible, of course, edema leading to possible um, worsening or increased risk of CHF. So that's real. So if somebody's got crazy out of control CHF, not that I've seen a patient with it just yet, but you probably don't want to start pioglitazone on them because it's, it comes with possible fluid retention and edema. Um, so the last thing you want to do is send somebody who's got stable CHF into like a florid exacerbation. So, um, that's a real thing. I think out of all the patients that I've seen in my almost six weeks, I've maybe only had one patient that came back and was like, you know, I noticed that my ankles were a little bit more swollen. Um, and then I forget what we did. I, I don't remember. For all I know, her blood sugar was so much better controlled that she was like, I don't care if I have a little swelling. I'll try compression stockings. Um, but anyway, again, that's um, an official side effect of pioglitazone. But again, that's the only thing that works for insulin resistance. So it really is a good little drug. All right, next up, DDP4 inhibitors, DDP4 inhibitors. And my mnemonic for these guys is I call them the DDP4 shields. Um, and the name of these guys are the gliptins. Uh, so anything that ends in gliptin is your gliptin shield. Uh, again, your DDP, DDP4 shield or your gliptin shield. I usually have to call it the gliptin shield because... Well, nobody ever calls it the DDP-4 other than inside the endocrinology office. Um, so the, the reason why I call it a shield is because it inhibits, this is its mechanism, it inhibits the dipeptidyl peptase. It, whatever, whatever, what, it inhibits the, de the degradation of GLP-1. So whatever the enzyme is that cleaves down the GLP-1 that I can't pronounce, um, but we call it the dipeptidase um, enzyme, the DDP, uh, I'm sure that's probably what it stands for. So it, in it inhibits the degradation of GLP-1. So it's a shield, right? It, it's, it spares your own natural body's GLP-1 or 
the exogenous GLP-1 hormones. So like the one that we give in a GLP-1 agonist like Ozempic and Victoza. So it's a really nice drug because it protects this super important hormone that has many, many, many important roles and works the best. Now, the difference, though, in real life about using a DDP-4 inhibitor versus a GLP-1 agonist is that the the GLP-1 agonist is actually pretty much a kind of a better drug because if your whole goal is to get more GLP-1 in the body, which one do you think is going to do that better? Just giving the patient GLP-1 or giving the patient a, a, a drug that protects the GLP-1 already in the body. So it, the, answer, the answer is you just should just give them GLP-1. Um, the unique thing about DDP-4 inhibitors is that you don't actually want to give them, you don't want to use them in conjunction with the GLP agonist. Uh, now, I would have thought that you would give the patient both, um, but that's actually not not how it's used in practice. And again, it just goes back to the whole like, well, what, like, what do we want? At the end of the day, we want higher levels of GLP-1 floating around. So rather than just protecting the shitty amount of the GLP-1 that the patient's body is not really producing that well, um, you know, do you want to produce, do you want to protect the 30% GLP-1 that the patient is producing on their own? Or do you just want to go give them a hundred percent of GLP-1 from uh, the medication. So that's the answer. And that's why we really don't use them together. That's not going to be on the pants though. Um, that's just again for your own edification. Um, side effects though, huge buzzword side effect that goes with DDP4 inhibitors is it may cause pancreatitis. So pancreatitis goes with DDP4 inhibitors, which again are the glyptins. Uh, these are the glyptin shields because they inhibit degradation of GLP-1. Again, therefore you have more circulating GLP-1, um, but really just go ahead and give the GLP-1 agonist medication to begin with. Um, so pancreatitis with um, with DDP-4 inhibitors, possible increased risk of heart failure with one of these very specifically called saxagliptin. Again, there's your glyptin, so your glyptin shields. Um, I don't know if that's going to be on the pants. I mean, who knows? I don't think I'm going to put it in my brain. I think I'm the only thing I'm going to put in my brain, side effect DDP-4 glyptin inhibitor shields, is pancreatitis. And that was well known uh, throughout the endocrinology office, well known. So um, basically, from what it turns out is that like in real life, just don't give it to anybody with out of control triglycerides. Because um, of course, I think the magic, the buzzword is like triglycerides over 500 risks pancreatitis. So I don't know where the cutoff is in the real world, but most people don't have um, those super high levels of triglycerides anyway. So we pretty much just give this medication to anybody who needs it. But again, officially, um, probably anybody with a triglyceride over 500, this would absolutely not be something that you wanted to do because of the pancreatitis. All right, and we made it to the end of the list, of the medication list. Uh, so these last three, uh, like I said before, I've never seen my endocrinology PA put a patient on any one of these. And in fact, he absolutely takes people off. Perhaps you can already guess that at least the first one up is a sulfonorrhea. Um, so these guys, uh, the 
generic names for them are like glyburide, glipizide, and glimipiride. Um, those are confusing for me because those all start with a GL and we just talked about the gliptins. So I was like, how is that even a thing? Um, so it's, it's pretty much like the, the rides, you're like going to let it ride, which I think is a risky move in, uh, betting, I, whatever, I don't know, poker, blackjack or craps, whatever. I don't know. So these, these, they, they end in ride, like R, R I D E. And, and again, these are the sulfonurias. And I also call this the sulfonuria squeeze, because essentially what it does is it squeezes the pancreas, um, to try to produce some insulin. Uh, that's how my preceptor put it to me. Um, the formal pants books want to call its mechanism of action is buzzword an insulin um, secretog, secretatog, secretogogog. <laughs> it secretes insulin somehow. That's what it does. And like I said, so it like it's a sulfonylurea squeeze. It squeezes the pancreas. Um, secretog, maybe that's how you pronounce it. Um, again, if you see that word, that goes with the sulfonylurea. Sulfonylurea. Um, and again, so this stimulates pancreatic beta, beta cell insulin release. So that's its MOA. Um, really quick, side effects are two huge absolute no-nos, hypoglycemia and weight gain. And those two things are absolutely legit. We have patients who come in who are only on like metformin and glimipiride, which again is uh, the sulfonylurea in, in this equation. And they will say that they get blood sugar lows and they haven't been able to lose weight. So these two side effects are absolutely legit and they're so problematic. And this is why endocrinologists absolutely should not be using them. And, and of course, neither should primary care docs. It's just, it shouldn't be a thing. It's old news. So huge side effects of sulfonylurea, hypoglycemia, weight gain. Um, but I guess they're used because they're rapidly effective to bring down blood sugar. But like at what expense? At the expense of like plummeting your patient into the 50s so that they get shaky and pass out and so that they can't lose any weight, which again, we're going to get to here real quick. So anyway, just really a terrible drug. Um, and again, we take people off of it all the time. Oh, and also, fun fact, it's also on the beers list. Um, so it's not for patients over like 60 or 65, which, uh, I mean, it's just crazy. There's so many reasons not to, I mean, those three reasons right there, just a huge um Huge reason not to use any of the sulfonylureas. Um, contraindications, big ones um, in CHF. Um, also liver disease, they can cause some fluid retention. But again, weight gain uh, is a big issue. So people who need to lose weight, obviously you shouldn't put them on it, but that doesn't matter. I guess people have been doing it any for years, so it hasn't changed. But not us. We're going to do it. We're the new generation. We're changing it. Do not use sulfonylureas. Just don't. Um, and then buzzword is bladder cancer. Um, really, is that a thing? Uh, I'm going to have to double check my notes, but I'm pretty sure, or maybe I just put that in the wrong section. Um, I'm pretty sure it's bladder, bladder cancer. Bladder cancer. Um, I'll get back to us, though. Um, okay, so that is the sulfonylureas. Again, just don't use them. And these are the rides because you're going to let it ride. You're going to, you're going to let it ride, which is a risky, was a risky move. Um, the next two I've never even heard of in the endocrinology office. I literally just read them in the pants books. Um, the, the last two are the alpha glucose 
glucosidase inhibitors, alpha glucosidase inhibitors. Um, this is a carbose and glycet. Uh, I don't even know, but the I, I think on like the um, pants practices that I've done, the practice tests, they all say like alpha glucose glucosidase inhibitor. Um, the MOA is that it delays intestinal glucose absorption. Possible side effects are maybe increased LFTs, hepatitis, diarrhea, and flatulence. Again, we don't use that medication in the real world, um, but maybe just see what do I need to know about it? Oh, possible increase in LFTs and hepatitis. Um, and then the very last one is your meglitinides, meglitinide. That's the uh, major drug class. Uh, repaglinide and nitidoglinide, uh, whatever. Um, mechanism here, it stimulates pancreatic beta cell insulin release. Hmm, that sounds super familiar to the sulfonylureas. Interesting. Uh, side effects possible, hypoglycemia. So again, just three terrible drugs. We don't use them, but you have to know them for the pants. Um, so those are the those are the drugs. And then finally, just a quick little note on insulin here. Um, and I talked uh, about the different kinds of insulin in the type one diabetes episode. So if you missed that or need a brush up, uh, I touched kind of briefly on those. So I'm not going to go into those here uh, again because you really you really don't want to have to use insulin in type 2 diabetics. That's just that's just not good medicine anymore. But according to my pants prep books, you are going to want to add insulin if somebody's hemoglobin A1C is over 9. Um, apparently that's what they, that's what the pants wants us to know, but that's not really what we do in real life. In real life, somebody, I mean, people come in with hemoglobin A1Cs of like 12 and 13, and we do not automatically put them on insulin. Um, and the, the thing that I'm going to say about insulin from some outside reading that I've been doing is that a, it's a hormone that tells your body when it's elevated, when when insulin levels are up, meaning if you've eaten a food that that raises insulin levels, it its presence actually tells the body to store whatever food you're eating as fat for later, as as energy for later, and and it can go, it, it can be turned into depending on what it depending on what it is that you eat. It, you can either store that as glucagon in the liver, or you can st you or you can um, you can store it as like fat, like either in like visceral, like in in your visceral organs, or in like your like f um, adipose uh, cells, or even like in your muscle cells, which it like t definitely shouldn't be in. But like these are all like worst case scenarios. So um, at any rate, insulin is the hormone that tells the body to store things for later use. And a good place to put it would be in the little special cells that the liver has for, to be stored as glucagon. That's fine. Um, but when it starts getting stored as fat in the adipose tissues, and then once those are all filled up, if you like start putting them in like your your viscera and your muscles, that's absolutely terrible. Um, and so one of the outside resources that I'm reading is um, – uh, by, uh, a book by the, by a nephrologist who like five years ago after like 90% of his patients were all just like diabetic kidney people, he started looking into diabetes. 
And his name is Dr. Jason Fung. And of course, I make I make no money off of this. Like, first of all, I make zero money off of this podcast at all. So like, just know that me saying his name is like, is bringing me exactly zero dollars. So like, this is somebody this is a doctor who I, I truly just kind of believe in. And I think he's on the forefront of diabetes education. Um, so if you're curious about diabetes, you can go and read about him. Um, again, Dr. Jason Fung. Um, but his whole thing is he really thinks that we should be calling diabetes hyperinsulinemia. So too much insulin. Everybody's out there talking about sugar, um, but he's going, guys, we need to talk about that diabetes is insulin. It's a problem of too much insulin in the body. Um, and there are various mechanisms that I have read outside of his um, like blog posts and books that I, I believe that diabetes comes with increased um, insulin levels. Like that's one of the ways that you can figure out that it's going on is take somebody's fasting insulin levels. In type 2 diabetics, those might be irrationally high because insulin should only be out flowing around in our body if we've just eaten a meal like within the past, I don't know, hour and a half or two hours. So um, it's just diabetes really, uh, again, I think coming in the forefront is that um, diabetes really is an issue with too much insulin in the body along with, of course, this insulin resistance. Um, and so if you think about treating if you think about diabetes in the sense that there's too much insulin because we've been eating too many carbs and too many sugars, we have too much it floating around in the body so that every time the patient eats, this hormone insulin is just telling their body to store, 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 just store this energy um, as, as somewhere in the body, often as fat because glucagon, glucagon stores are usually full in the liver. They, there's not that much room in there. Um, that it's just it's just a double whammy to then go and prescribe type two diabetes patients insulin. That's just crazy. Again, when you think about ins- when you think about diabetes as it's too much insulin in the body, um, it, it makes sense on why it would be the absolute craziest idea that you would prescribe insulin to someone because insulin a, n- a known side effect of insulin is weight gain. It's almost impossible for my patients to lose weight if they are on. Even a moderate amount of insulin, uh, which is again just so counterproductive. So, not that my preceptor has talked to me or told me about this notion of too much insulin as being how we should actually think about diabetes type two. So, I'm not endorsing. Um, I'm not saying that this is what I learned, but just being in the endocrinology office has had me really interested and I've started to read some outside sources and some of those sources have been super interesting. But the thing that my preceptor and I do preach to our patients is that we, again, we try to get patients off insulin because my preceptor says that rightfully, correctly, the vast majority of medical research agrees that um, insulin, a side effect is weight gain. So he's like, look, I don't know why we want to put these patients on insulin because they're already overweight. So we really should get them off their insulin. Um, and he pretty much stops there. Um, but I am a nerd in some areas. Um, turns out type two diabetes is one of them. Um, and I looked into it and, um, I really am coming around to this idea of that, um, diabetes is a problem with too much insulin in the body. Uh, so anyway, uh, I'm going to leave it at that. This is probably the longest show I will ever do. Um, but 
We've covered absolutely everything for type 2 diabetes that you could possibly ever want to know. So bravo, guys. You did it. All right, so that'll do it for everything you could ever possibly want to know about type 2 diabetes, at least in the early part of 2019. This is what I've got for us. This is the most updated information that I have. Uh, So thanks for sticking in there with me. Um, I'm sure you learned way more than you wanted to, but turns out this is something that I'm super interested in. So we'll see where I land uh, as far as career goes. Um, But I just wanted to leave you with the last little funny saying that I usually say to my new patients that I see. Um, And so these are patients who come in, again, as new patients, and they've usually been managed by their primary care doctors before um, they came to see us. And and almost without fail, these patients are on metformin and a sulfonylurea, at least at m- most likely both of those medications, and they're still out of control. And so the thing that I say to these patients is, look, the last time we treated diabetes with the medications that you're on, new kids on the block were famous. Nothing against them. It's just a 90s reference to paint a picture of how ancient this med- these medications are. And they usually laugh, and it, it helps paint the picture that... These medications that they're on really are quite old, um, and uh, they're usually pretty good about trying something new, especially when I say that I will finally get their blood sugar under control. So um, anyway, there's that. So new kids on the block rule, and I even think that they're making new singles now, uh, which is fantastic. So uh, anyway, that's the end of the show. Thanks, guys, and see you next time. Oh, 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 oh,